0: June 20th, 2022, I'm Ron Scharf. I'm Avi Kaufman. And this is Accent Insights.
1: In Brookline over the past couple years, there have been several groups that have coalesced around housing priorities and housing policy in Brookline. One of them, Brookline for Everyone, we've talked about before in some of our previous podcasts, they've been referenced. We have with us today, Jeff Wachter, who along with Amanda Zimmerman, is one of the
0: co-founders of Brookline for Everyone. I mean, we should just add, you know, along with Amanda Zimmerman, his wife, <laughs> which I think is not a secret, right? No, nope. great, uh, Jeff. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Ron.
1: Thanks, Avi. Uh, it's great to be here. So, Jeff, um, maybe just to start, could you introduce yourself and tell us what is Brookline for Everyone? Sure.
2: So, um, as as Avi mentioned, uh, my name is Jeff Walker. Um, I'm one of the co founders of Brookline for Everyone, which is a, a pro housing organization here in Brookline. Um, that was founded in the fall of 2019. So, I guess a little uh, on my background. I've uh, always have studied city and urban history, um, and uh, and have done some, done research on um, community groups in metro areas, city county consolidation, um, immigration policies, things like that. Um, and really, have just always been interested in cities, how they develop, and what what makes a place vibrant and engaging. What makes a place people really want to live in, and and then also the challenges that can sometimes break down that dynamism. Um, which, which is what really brought me to housing. So Brooklyn for Everyone, like I said, started in the fall of 2019, uh, when basically when my wife got annoyed by me always arguing with people on the Facebook group, um, which, uh, I'm, I'm sure those of you who've, who ventured into the, the town Facebook group, uh, know, know what I mean. Um, and really just challenged me to actually do something about it instead of just arguing with people. Um, so the two of us kind of scrolled through feeds about housing and found people who agreed with us on, on the need for Brookline to add additional housing, um, and we just sent messages to people and said, uh, I, "I see you're you're of a like mind on on housing policy, and you want to get together and see if we can actually do something." And so that was the the genesis of our first meeting. There were probably about eight or ten people that uh, that managed to come, and we decided that this was something that um, we we really could organize around, and there was a lot of interest beyond really the the normal population of folks involved in town politics uh, it can be uh, a pretty uh, a pretty tight circle at times for a town as large as ours but uh, since then we've really tried to focus our efforts in four areas um outreach electoral advocacy and policy and ultimately we don't really need to in- reinvent the wheel there are a lot of great steps that people have taken all over the country uh to develop and implement pro housing policies california's adu laws um legalizing two or four family homes in oregon uh, eliminating parking minimums like Hartford, Connecticut recently did, uh, and Cambridge's affordable housing overlay, uh, which they implemented just a couple of years back. The, the policies are out there. It's just a matter of of helping people connect the dots, really. I think we've found that most people, they recognize housing affordability is a big problem. Um, I was talking with, uh, with someone who was doing some door knocking recently, and they said whether you're in a big apartment complex or whether you're walking up to what looks like a big mansion in, in parts of Brookline, the ability for folks to afford to live here uh, is at the top of people's mind. And so really, we, we want to try to help them understand that housing policy, um, increasing housing supply is definitely a, a key component of um, of addressing housing affordability. But beyond that, it's also it, it helps address climate change, income inequality, um, racial disparities. Um, there's a lot of a lot of issues that people in Brookline really care a lot about. And we've we found that housing really can, can be a, a key pillar tying all these all these issues together.
0: Jeff, if you, if you break it down, would you say that the core value in the group is just more housing? I mean, does it get any more basic than that? And then, can you talk about sort of where, if anywhere, things start to sort of splinter in terms of different thinking on how to achieve, you know, more affordability for people?
2: Sure. I mean, I think I think it's important to um, to recognize that. People talk about housing affordability and, and it means different things to different people. Um, and we've kind of, we've always kind of thought about that, that there are, are two, are two housing affordability problems, right? There's the one side where some people just don't have enough income to afford housing pretty much anywhere. Um, and that's always going to take um either government intervention or some other intervention to help to help folks get into a secure stable housing, which is definitely a priority f- both for myself personally as well as Brookline for Everyone. Where we've worked closely with the um Brookline Housing Authority um and and the Brookline Improvement Coalition, our CDC here in town, to uh to help identify ways that we can that we can help there too. Um and then there's the other side where it's people who have traditional middle middle class white collar jobs that um struggle to afford to live here. I saw some research that was suggesting something around two hundred twenty thousand dollars for a family of four is not really enough to afford median income here in here in Brookline. And that's uh that that's that stat really blows people away. Um, particularly people who might have moved here a while ago when you have a single family home walkable to the T that two two high school teachers live in, because that was what what we used to be able to have when we lived in a time when people were we were still building enough housing, which hasn't really been the case in a while.
1: Jeff, how has the policies of Brookline for Everyone, how has it been received by the electorate here and by residents in Brookline? I know we just had a recent town election and it was somewhat contentious, especially around housing policy. I think more than any previous election, it seemed very focused on housing policy. Was that a referendum on Brookline for Everyone or why was that to the forefront of everyone's uh, mind and how do you interpret that?
2: Sure. So I, I definitely think it's the case that um, the the energy that Brookline for Everyone has brought, um, as well as some other other groups, uh, Building Better Brookline um, also recently was has been formed around uh, addressing housing affordability. Um, and there's been it just seems like it's an issue that's that's in the air in general. It was a, a key plank of Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign and the Democratic platform that Joe Biden um, agreed to when, in, uh, when he ran for president in 2020. So it's just an, an issue that that people are talking about. So I think that's that's definitely part of it. Um, I don't know that I would call it a referendum necessarily, but yeah, I mean I, it's definitely uh, has galvanized some some folks, and I think a lot of the people who've been involved in Brooklyn politics for a long time have been residents for a long time and have come to expect a certain uh, a certain thing when they think about what Brookline is. And while I don't think that anything that Brookline for Everyone has proposed or plans to propose would dramatically change things. We're, we're not talking about putting up 20, 30-story buildings anywhere in town, for that matter. But I think even small incremental change, it scares people. Fear can often be a galvanizing motivation um, in politics. To that end, I also think it's important to, to recognize that the, the May election is 20, 25% turnout, which is, it's hard to say much of anything is really fully decided. Um, when when only that, that small fraction of, of the population shows up. And, and a lot of races were very close. And I think there were some precincts where the Brooklyn for Everyone message resonated more strongly than others. Um, and there were some parts of town that were very happy to uh,
0: stick with the, the folks they knew. Can I, can I back you up a little bit, Jeff? Sure. You know, so big message, it seems to be more housing. Can you talk a little bit about specific policies that you guys are are pursuing? Because I think even in the election, right, I don't think there was too much in terms of specifics, either on the Brookline for Everyone side or on some of the other group side. It was like a you know, sort of broad slogan. Um, and that sort of made it easy for people to sort of accept or dismiss. But, you know, t- talk a little bit about what what you guys would like to see.
2: Sure. What, one of the things that we've recognized that has resulted in the housing undersupply and housing shortage that we that we see today has been layers and layers of, of zoning that has been put in place to make it um, as difficult and complicated as possible to build additional housing. And so I think right now we're really focused on areas where we can start to peel back some of those regulations. There's a local resident who owns a parcel in Coolidge Corner, and they're looking to build a high-end restaurant on the first floor with housing above it. And the whole plan fell apart because of the parking requirements, right? They, it wouldn't have been financially feasible to build as much parking as was otherwise required, both for the restaurant itself, um, as well as for the housing to be built on top. Um, and so one of the policies that we pushed this past year has been to cut the residential parking requirements in half. It did pass town meeting. Um, it's my understanding that that's being contested at the moment, uh, the legality of that specific bylaw. But that's the type of policy that we're that we're really focused on right now. Uh, town meeting passed an accessory dwelling unit by law a few years back. Um, and as I understand, one ADU has been approved since that time. The restrictions on what has to happen for you to actually build that unit are pretty extreme. And so we would, we'd like to take a page out of Arlington's book that just passed a, an ADU bylaw law that, that actually can allow some ADUs to get built. There's there's a lot of places where you can stick a, a small house in the, in the in your backyard or convert a basement um, without really dramatically changing much of anything in the neighborhood, except really making a big, a big change for the person who can afford to actually move into that kind of unit. Going forward, I think we're really excited to, to be following the housing production plan process that that started, uh, I think, in earnest uh, into last year, or beginning of this year, with some uh, community forums, uh, with the final one coming up next next Monday on June twenty seventh, and we've, we've people have had a lot of great comments about the kind of housing that, that people are looking for. A lot of that is to increase some, some density, allow for some four to six story buildings going up in Coolidge Corner and Washington Square and places that already have the transit accessibility and commercial activity that, that already provides a lot of vibrancy. Th- those are the, the kind of the kind of housing changes we're, we're hoping to, to, to implement. I think it's really important to, to think about um, the changes that we want. I think um, I think incremental is really the, the key word there. We're not talking about dropping a 12-story building in the middle of Fisher Hill. That that would seem kind of crazy, um, but maybe if the lot size requirements weren't quite the same, and someone wanted to put some townhomes up, that would still have parking because that's what the buyer would probably want. You can make some some changes there to uh, increase housing housing units and, and homes for people without really dramatically changing uh, the, the look and feel of most neighborhoods.
1: It sounds smart politically. Uh, you know, things like the parking minimums, that seems like one of the least controversial things that I, it sounds, from, from what I've observed, it gets support more broadly. Even ADUs, I think we talked about the ADUs when that Warren article was passed a couple of years ago, and we, we talked on this podcast about how it was much more restrictive than uh, Newton's ADU uh, policy and how uh, there were very few that would actually qualify for it when you run the numbers. Um, so uh, I'm glad that we're still talking about that. But Brookline has a reputation for being a very liberal town, uh, where you, you know generally you say not look very progressive, but housing policy it's it has been much more controversial than these incremental changes would suggest perhaps people see ADUs, perhaps they think, oh, you're trying to turn my single family into a uh, two-family and a backdoor route or something. And we've had someone, even on this podcast, uh, we had a guest who asked, why do you hate single families? Um, and I, I mean, I think the answer is we don't, right? Like we just <laughs> like more housing. But why do you think that this it seems to defy sort of the traditional liberal conservative uh, political spectrum? It seems even within the liberal progressive Wing of Brookline that it's turned into two opposing camps.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of that is is that the way we think about liberal and conservative is really mapped onto onto federal policy and the federal level, and that's uh, it just doesn't always translate when we actually get into the nuts and bolts of running running a community day to day. I think there's a bit of a generational divide um, where you have people who might have moved to Brookline at a time when um, a standard middle class family, um, could, could afford to move to Brookline. And while they might recognize that there's a housing affordability challenge for, for many, it doesn't seem quite as acute if you haven't really had to, had to be in the thick of it. Um, and I also think that there are some, some challenges that some of the fights of the past have defined the way people think about all kinds of issues, um, environmentalism and, Developers and big business and all of these sorts of issues were defined for a lot of people um, in a in a different era with different players and different issues, and that um, that framing gets mapped onto whatever the current debate is. And I'm I'm sure I I do the same with the the worldview that I've developed over over my years. So it's not necessarily a problem that this is how they're viewing it, but I think that it can lead to some I'm going to say conflicting perspectives on what progressivism actually means. Um, we've had a lot of really great conversations with people, I'm going to say, across the Brookline spectrum, which is what center left to far left, where you have people who start off that, oh, the only solution to housing is to decommodify housing and make everything public and make everything state run. And there's an argument that that can make sense. But I think at the end of the day that we're not we're not overturning capitalism, right? But when you can actually start talking to them, then they start to recognize that, oh, like we can get 20% towards what I want by creating more housing here. The only new housing we want to be built, it should be for low-income individuals. Okay, well, the only way that we're really getting that right now is federal funding that's not really coming, um, state funding that's not really coming or insufficient to to really move the needle, or inclusionary zoning bylaw. And the only way that our inclusionary zoning bylaw can really be triggered is if we're building large enough multifamilies that um, inclusionary units actually get built. So I think it's I think at the end of the day the I think people who are still open to thinking about what progressive what progressivism means and what the values that they that they claim and, and state and, and really believe in. I, I certainly believe that things that these that they really want to see in the in the world and in the community, getting from getting from the ideal um, to reality sometimes requires thinking about issues a little bit differently. Um, And that's that's definitely can be hard for people who've who've have who have ideas ingrained.
0: Um, A little earlier, you you talked about sort of the medium income to afford Brookline being in the mid two hundred thousands. So, as a policy group, how do you guys define affordable? And you know, how much more housing do you think the town needs to get there? Have you thought about sort of what's the goal? Sure. So, so affordable to
2: me means housing that an individual can can afford based on whatever that whatever that income means, right? So some affordable housing is going to be subsidized housing that um people who have lower incomes that um might never be able to to get to a, a market rate housing could could be able to afford. Um, but it also means that if you're a two family earner with white collar professional adults that want to live in Brookline and raise your kids in Brookline because you grew up here, your, your, your religious community is here or whatever the case may be, um, that it, it, that seems like something that we should be able to, you should be able to do. Now, as when you say, how, how much housing does Brookline need? Um, it's a complicated question, right? Cause it's, we're, we're not, we're not an Island. Um, the, the housing market in Brookline is very much connected to the rest of the region. I, last last I saw, people were are saying that the Boston Metro needs somewhere around two hundred thousand units, and I think that for that to happen, um, in a in a equitable way, in a way that that works for for everyone across across all communities, I think everyone needs to, um, do their part, um, and I think that do their part is somewhat intentionally vague because I I think that you get into problems when you start trying to calculate. Okay, that means that Newton needs. 12,000 of those units and Brookline needs 7,000 of those units or whatever, whatever the numbers are. That's not really the goal. The goal is to create an environment where people can grow their communities. Up through the eighties, um, the Boston region added sufficient housing to keep up with population and economic growth. Um, and that's Brookline included. That's Cambridge, Boston, Newton uh, across the region. We we kept up with it. Um, and that was also the time when a lot of the, um, the zoning that had always previously been pretty explicitly racist or anti-Semitic or whatever, uh, whatever the, the community was trying to keep out was shifting to be a much more um, neutral sounding, pure technocratic sort of, uh, sort of concept. And if you look at our zoning map, the parts of town that already have multifamily are the only places you can build multifamily. And the places that only have single family are, you have a circle around it. And you can, you can almost tell that someone took that map and they literally drew around these four buildings are single family. So let's make this single family. And these four buildings are multifamily. So let's like make it multifamily. And when you do that level of, of zoning, you you stop anything from from changing. Um, and so it's, it's tough because we haven't built in any substantive numbers for 30 plus years. Um, we, there's a huge deficit. Um, and that obviously has led to the affordability here. So really our goal is to create an environment where um, if someone owns a parcel of land and they want to build additional units, if they want, if they have uh, a two family on Washington street and they would like to make that into a six family or an eight family. Um, great. Like that should be, that should be okay. Um, if someone has a single family on Corey Hill, half a block from, uh, from the T and they want to divide it into two units, that shouldn't require that the hoops that are required. And ultimately the money, I think it's, it's, Fascinating to hear from um, folks who oppose a lot of what we're trying to do. Talk about how that by being pro housing, we're also being pro developer, and that all we're trying to do is help make developers more money. When the reality is, the developers don't really mind. They have the money, the resources, the lawyers to to go through our process and to get the zoning overlays changed and to do the projects that they want to do. Um, it's the small scale developers that um, that built the triple deckers that, uh, that 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 define so much of the region that are are priced out and are blocked out uh, from being able to do that today.
1: Yeah, to that point, uh, one of the other criticisms that people bring up uh, is, well, if we build so much housing, we'll overload our schools, we'll overload our roads, we'll overload our public resources. Now, when I I hear that, I I sort of say, well, it works in other places. Uh, You know, when you increase the value, you increase the tax base and, you know, no one's complaining that, that Back Bay is overrun. Um, but how do you how do you think of that? What's your view on on that question of resources when you increase the population?
2: Yeah, so um, it's I think it's it's an important concern, um, and I think part of that is that along with um, increasing housing, we have to recognize that some of that means we also have to figure out how we can how we can take advantage of the thriving um, economic environment of the region. If that means making it possible, there's a there's a group right now trying to figure out how to get some um, to to legalize lab space getting built on Boylston Street to to try to piggyback off of the Longwood Medical area and try to get some to broaden the commercial tax base. I think that's that's certainly important. Um, uh, And it's also the case that um, the um, metropolitan area Planning Council has done a lot of research to try to understand what adding more housing will do to the schools. Um, And they're really finding that there's not as direct of a correlation as I think a lot of people assume there would be. There are communities that add a ton of housing that don't really add a lot of school population. And there's communities at certain times that add a ton of school population without a lot of new housing. Not to say that if we added a a whole lot more housing that there would be no additional students. Of of course, there would be. But the kind of housing that that there's a really strong demand for right now, there's a, a lot of people in... Roommate situations that want to have a one-bedroom apartment. That the the project um, that's going up at 209 Harvard Street right now um, has a handful of of multi-bedroom, but there's about 35 to 40 of them are are studios and very small studios at that. Um, recognizing that there's a there's just a huge need for 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 that type of housing. We're also recognizing that um, as the population ages, people don't necessarily want their suburban lifestyles that they might have, that they might've really liked when they're, when they had kids. And instead they'd like to retire somewhere that they can actually walk around and use transit on a personal level. My, my parents are, are looking to, to move up here to be closer to their grandkids and they've lived in classic Sunbelt suburbia. They're as, as far back as they can remember. And, um, they, they love the idea that they can just go downstairs and, um, Walk to a restaurant, uh, walk to meet friends, um, but it's been a challenge for them because we don't have a lot of um, elevator buildings that they certainly are, are going to need as they as they age. They're looking for buildings with amenities that might be a little newer, and we just we just don't have those. Um, they want potential friends and neighbors that they can actually interact with, um, and there's just not a lot of choices because we've we've we blocked a lot of those buildings. Um, there's there's a reason that most of the taller buildings on Beacon Street. All look like they're from the 70s and 80s because and that's when we stopped allowing them to get built as as the population grows which i think it seems like it's it's been growing anyways um we're gonna have to figure out how to how to pay for things and prioritize what's most important for the community um but i think there's there's a lot of ways to do that um and like you said people have have done that and we we used to be able to do it and sometimes that can be creative i i was really impressed with the creativity around um I believe it was in Boston. There's a they're rebuilding a library with a few floors of housing above it, because they might not have the capital to build that new library. But if they can partner with a developer who can add housing to the neighborhood, um, that can help subsidize that that library, until so they can get a brand new resource for the community without necessarily tapping into to the tax base, tax dollars. Well,
0: in addition to the you know to the. Issues that Avi mentioned. What are the what are you hearing most in opposition to what you're trying to accomplish? What are the what are the the top three bullet points of people who don't like what you guys are trying to do?
2: Yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of I don't know almost aesthetic preferences being prioritized over um, the needs of um, of people to be housed. Um, I think people don't like the idea that a house that they May have lived nearby for a long time that they that they value just as a pretty part of their walk every morning, um, might end up getting torn down or replaced with something different. Um, and that and that change is is something that uh, that we definitely hear some some opposition to. Um, I think there's also um, a really interesting one, I think is is what I think is misplaced environmental concerns um i think there there are people who um say oh well if you're if you're going to tear down this building that's all of the resources that went into building that re- that building are now um being just destroyed or thrown away um or if you're building a big a uh a, a multifamily on what used to be a two family with a yard it has less green there's less grass so there's less green space and therefore it must be environmentally worse um without really recognizing that i mean denser building is the green choice um There's a great project at UC Berkeley that maps most of the major metro areas, um, and, and, uh, per capita carbon emissions. Um, and it's abundantly clear that the denser communities and the places that have more transit access have significantly lower carbon emissions per capita because people share walls. So there's less energy waste there. Um, they're more likely to walk. They're, they're more likely to take transit. Um, I mean, my, my wife and I, like I said, we grew up in, in, some belt suburbia never could have imagined if you told me when I was 18 that we, I would live in a household with three kids and one car. That's just mind blowing. Um, but it is. And because we don't have the second car, we, we don't drive as much. I think it's, it's again, thinking about the issue from kind of a more holistic perspective instead of just the more immediate. Um, yeah, like there is some negative carbon impact of tearing something down. Um, but that, that carbon impact is is more than uh, more than offset by the, um, by the benefits of the, of the denture lifestyle. And yeah, I mean, I think there's also a, a, a vague notion that anyone who's profiting from building homes is somehow bad and developers are the enemy for some reason um, without really recognizing that, I mean, someone built all of the homes here and most of those homes were built by people trying to make money. Um, I found it, um, Somewhat ironic that there was uh, a recent discussion about uh, the potential expansion of a historic district um, on Longwood, uh, right near the um, near the Boston line, and the description of why they needed to preserve this was because it represented an important development style of the of the era. Um, because someone owned all of this land, recognized that there was a new a new train stop being built there, which is um, the Longwood T stop, and that they wanted to subdivide the property. Um, to build more houses so they could increase their profit from the land that they owned. So the same people who tell you that the developers are bad are also telling you that we need to preserve this because developers did this important historic innovation.
0: Um, So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we've had had um, had some direct exposure to the developers are evil uh, mindset here uh, among the group we're talking uh, (laughs) <laughs> so uh, we, we know all about that. But uh, I, I mean, it is interesting. There There is, uh, you know, of the things you mentioned, um, it is interesting that in Brookline, there does seem to be this notion of a right to the neighborhood people are used to, um, which, you know, there's a reason people come here, right? So it's not for nothing. They like, you know, people do like Brookline and they like the charm and all of that. and And you do see now... A lot of very modern buildings have shot up in the last two years that people are, are not happy with the aesthetic of. So it's interesting about how to, you know, how to balance those things. Your property right, you know, where does it end? Uh, typically on your lot, but uh, in Brookline, it seems that there's, uh, you know, a sense that there's a little bit more than that.
2: Yeah, I think I think the the, the new buildings going up, um, which are mostly. 40b buildings going up, so it's not so much that we're letting them go up. Um, but I do think it's interesting when we have the the hearings about those new buildings. The neighbors come and they say it's too tall, or they say um, their issues are often about size and scale. And the developer wants to work with them because they want to they want to they, they don't want to make the neighbors angry, um, if at all possible, right? They, the, the project has the pencil, but they still need to. But they, they'd like to be good neighbors. But if those fo- same people came instead and said, "We understand that." For this to work, you need it to be six stories. I'd kind of prefer it five, but if it needs to be six, can we at least add some design features that match the buildings nearby? Um, I think one of the, one of the really positive things about the, um, the Waldo Durgan, um, development process is that the town worked closely with the developer to identify how to make, uh, how to make John Street feel more like a neighborhood street. So right now with that parking garage there, um, it's just kind of a blank wall for half a block. Um, And then you get to um, stoops with three-story walk-ups of six units in each. Um, And so as part of the new project, they're going to have stoops in this new building that's going to be, I want to say, 11 or 12 stories. Um, And the first floor units are going to have direct access. And because of that, it's going to feel much more like the rest of the neighborhood. They're going to use similar brickwork. They're going to use similar facades. Um, And so those are the sorts of I think the the discussions that we we should be having when we're talking to developers and going to design review and going to all of these, going to all these hearings that we have to have. Um, But you can't ask for that and also tell them that they need to cut it down or add more parking or whatever it is that you think that that it needs to, I think to some people you think they need in order to kill it. But um, I think it's, it's important. Like we can ask for design features that might make it look more, um, more amenable to the, to, the, to the neighboring blocks. But it's also the case that when the houses that they they love and they don't want to get torn down were built, a lot of people complained about how those looked too. Um, it, was, it was cheap, they all looked the same. The, I mean, I guess the, the example of the, the painted ladies in San Francisco, um, those were just mass produced houses because they needed to put people in homes. Um, and the wealthy people at the time they were built a hundred years ago, went on and on about how ugly they were and how it was destroying the neighborhood and how they could never, like, it would never be the same. And now they're these multi-million-dollar beloved entities, um, that no one could ever imagine tearing down. So adding a little perspective, I think would, would, uh, could, could provide a lot of value. Hmm.
1: So, so Jeff, something you said earlier, also, uh, I've been thinking about, uh, that we're not an Island, that part of the greater Boston area, part of a state, part of a, a uh, you know, there's federal policy that comes into play, um, But there's also the question of, has Brookline been free riding compared to our neighbors? Have we been building less and actually benefiting from it if our neighbors build more housing and we don't, by comparison, that increases the property value in Brookline? So so I I guess the question is, not being an island, uh, how does Brookline and how does Brookline for Everyone uh, partner with similar organizations in other towns or with goals at the state level?
2: Absolutely, that's a great question, and something that we've we've definitely been um, been engaged with a lot uh, of late. Um, so uh, recently, a, a state level organization uh, called Abundant Housing Massachusetts um, was formed to connect groups like Brookline for Everyone with um, with other groups in the area, uh, and then also um, work with the state house to identify potential state level fixes. Not so much prescriptive zoning necessarily, although that that may be in the future. But really just creating some more state policies so that towns don't try to free ride as, as, as you said. So Brooklyn for Everyone is, uh, is a member of, um, Abundant Housing Mass. Um, so we, we support a lot of their work. Right now they're actually, um, working on, uh, uh on lobbying for, um, House Bill 1448 and Senate Bill 871, which is an act relative to housing production. The bills would establish statewide housing production goals. Um, including minimum numbers of afford- affordable units. Um, it would require uh, multifamily zoning in transportation-rich communities, um, make uh, accessory dwelling units by right um, in every city and town across the state, um, and, and also uh, create opportunities for, for communities to set minimum affordability requirements for new housing uh, by a simple majority instead of the two-thirds that, that it requires today. So that's just just one example of um, of some great work that's that's being done at the state level, um, that, for for everyone, is is certainly um, is very supportive of. Um, we've also worked worked closely with um, with some with our friends in, in Newton. Uh, they have an organization called Inch and Six that is uh, very active right now. Newton's working on some um, some significant zoning reform. That it's been a battle there. It's definitely been a major political issue. That. Uh, that they're that they're working on. Um, there's uh, equitable Arlington um, in Arlington, a better Cambridge in Cambridge, and there's uh, a, a bunch of other uh, a bunch of other groups that have popped up, all trying to accomplish the same goals. And I think that the idea being to also to to think about what what you what different groups are able to accomplish within their own communities, and then how we can help each other um, identify those opportunities so that we can establish these across more areas. So if, if we can legalize um, more housing in more places um, across the region, that's gonna take a lot of the pressure off of any one community to, um, to change too dramatically. Um, which I think if, if Brookline continues to prevent new housing from, from getting built, we're either gonna get to a point where major employers are gonna say, I, I, can't, I can't move to, to Boston or I have to leave Boston because I can't, I can't have staff that can afford to live here. Which will hurt all of us, or it's going to have to go somewhere. And historically, when it has to go somewhere, it goes to the places with the least political power, which are often minority communities, lower income communities, um, the places that have been that have been ravaged by um, highway construction in the in the 60s and 70s, places that are are still where the most industrial uses are going, that have all, all sorts of implications for those communities. So, uh, if we're not doing our part, and if Newton's not doing theirs, and Cambridge and Somerville and Wellesley and everywhere else, um, it's just going to continue dumping more of the pressure onto um, onto our lower, lowest income communities and neighbors to uh, to pick up the brunt of it.
0: Well, wow. uh, I'm looking at the time and we're about twice our normal podcast length here, and I feel like we could keep going on for at least uh, this much uh, this has been super interesting and like very helpful to spend a little time getting a little bit underneath, you know, just the broad slogans and 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 really hear a little bit of specifically what you guys are up to. So really, thank you so much for coming on. I hope we can get you back here in the future for like updates along the way, how things are going and, and new initiatives and things like that.
2: Sure. That'd be great. This has definitely been fun. And like you said, I, I could, we, we could talk about this all night. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk about it more. Um, and and I think it's also important to to kind of close that with um, the idea that our policy proposals are, are one thing, but really the, the the goal here is to is to get out our pro housing message. Um, we we really can be a diverse place, racially, ethnically, economically, uh, and more. But if we continue on our current trajectory, restricting new housing development, we'll just find ourselves in increasingly dichotomous town with super wealthy and people who get really lucky with the housing lottery for the low-income units um, and I think that's that's a community that no matter where you stand on on a lot of these housing issues that idea is not something that you're really hoping to get so we definitely need to to try to try some something to uh to address this um and uh, I think uh, a pro
1: housing and abundant housing um, strategy is the way to go well, thank you, Jeff, for, for the insightful conversation. We really enjoyed having you. Uh, until next time, everyone, uh, thank you. Um, if you have any questions that you'd like to send in, we're info at accentbrookline.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from
0: you and hear your view on these topics. Oh, and maybe we should add, Jeff, is there like a Brookline for Everyone website or someplace where people can get more information or ask you guys questions directly?
2: Yeah, of course. So um, you can uh, go to brooklineforeveryone.com. Uh, or reach out to us at brooklineforeverone at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at for Everyone.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much, Jeff. And until next time, uh, we'll talk to all of you soon.